Hello and welcome. My name's Joe Frost and I'm here with my co-host Peter Linus and this is Being Human. Boom shakalak. So we obviously record this just a little bit of an advance uh, of when uh, things go out. And we now know that the first episode went really well and that we were trending in the iTunes store. Uh, so we want to thank I- you all for listening. We do indeed. It's always good when we're beating the moral maze in Radio 4. I feel like that is something to be noted. That is a result. Whether we keep beating them is a whole other question. But thanks for listening. Thanks for reviewing. Thanks for sharing. Thanks for doing all those things that continue to spread the word about being human. Indeed. So um, if you haven't had a chance to already, please check out our website, uh, beinghumanproject.co.uk. Um, I actually got it right that time, I'd just like to note. Um, we're beginning to put some res- uh, resources on there. This is a three-year project, the Being Human Project, looking at some of the most challenging and divisive issues of what it means to be human in our culture today. Uh, this podcast is ultimately one strand of this much bigger project, and we would love for you to come on this journey with us. Yeah, so we're following the larger biblical story arc. Uh, We jumped right in with Whose Lives Matter, looking at a very topical story clash. And then we stepped back to look at the foundation stories. And in the last episode, we looked at basically what went wrong. The problem is you, I think we agree, Joe. Um, um, We then had some bonus episodes with the wonderful and amazing Mark Sayers of This Cultural Moment fame. Um, And it's fair to say that if I was in charge, we could just stay in Genesis for the whole season. But you have dragged me kicking and screaming in this episode into the Exodus story, a story of liberation and a story of freedom. I think we can all just take a moment to agree that it is a very good thing that you are not in charge. Uh, Yes, we looked at freedom in the first season. Um, For all of our episodes, we asked what it is, where is it found, who's free, who's not, how free are you, if freedom is a a degree of measure. But if you haven't had a chance to already, do go back and have a listen. But there is always something new to be said about freedom. And these days, with personal and civil liberties being actively curtailed because of the pandemic that we're going through, a discussion on freedom feels as necessary now as ever. The meta story that we're looking at today is based on the Exodus story, the story of slavery, the story of rescue, the story of freedom. God's people were enslaved by the Egyptians They were denied their humanity, forced to live in service as the property of another, the the Egyptian pharaoh. And God heard their cries as they, they raised them up, the people who were oppressed. And the liberator came down and set his people free. And he made his way, uh, he made a way then through the Red Sea for the people and brought his people into the promised land where they would be able to live in full and abundant freedom and lives in the presence of God before their liberator, their redeeming God. So this is the arc uh, that we want to follow, this arc of slavery, rescue and freedom, because it's a really powerful one. It gives a narrative to the experiences that we go through both as individuals and as a society. So... I guess the question we're asking in this episode is, are we free or are we enslaved? Are we preserving our freedom or do we need rescuing? So that question, 
are we free or are we enslaved? Uh, do we need rescuing or are we simply protecting our freedoms? To answer those questions, we're returning, obviously, to my first year of my English Lit degree to study Orwell versus Huxley. You mean George Orwell and Aldous Huxley? Is it true you just don't like saying names? I hate names. All names, any name. Yeah, no. How do you say How do you say his name again? Aldous Huxley? Aldous. Okay, yeah, I, just, I can do you that. just go for Huxley, I think, going forward. Thank you. I appreciate it. Okay, so 1984, George Orwell imagined a world of draconian government, of the ever-watching big brother, of the state restricting freedom and policing not only our actions, but our thoughts. Huxley, on the other hand, thought that we would be willing um, and perfectly happy to give away our freedoms for the promise of comfort and conformity. Yeah, so Orwell feared those who would deprive us of information, whereas Huxley feared those who would give us so much that we would be reduced to kind of passivity and egoism. Orwell feared the truth would be concealed and hidden away from us. Huxley feared the truth would be drowned in a sea of irrelevance. Orwell feared that we would become a captive culture. Huxley feared we would become a trivial culture. So if Orwell is right, we need to protect our freedoms from state overreach. But if Huxley is right, then we are already enslaved and in desperate need of being rescued. So I think we see both realities playing out in society today. Um, in the coronavirus, we have seen how power mixed with fear make for an incredibly unhealthy combination. The excuse of governments to be able to curtail freedoms, to do things that won't get the level of uh, scrutiny that is needed. Uh, we've seen that widespread. The COVID license, um, sorry, the COVID legislation um, that we have here in the UK is potentially pretty draconian. The government has initially given itself powers for two years that reduce the level of scrutiny that Parliament needs uh, to pass legislation. It has radically changed established rights and freedoms around education, healthcare, how to go to work, how to open places of worship, and even just simply leaving our homes. Then we've also already seen the rise of uh, isolationist rhetoric and populist nationalism, just like we discussed with Mark Sayers last time, that has led to the unchecked power of totalitarian states rising up all over the world. Uh, the crimes against the Uyghurs, for example, in China is just but one horrific example. And then we've also seen the onslaught of our understanding of information, of truth, of reality that are being played out in social media through the rise of fake news and disinformation, trolling, cancel culture. In other words, Big Brother reigns large in many states and increasingly in our own. Yeah, so I, I mean, I have some sympathy for your Big Brother point, and I do think we need to be really careful of the Orwell piece, but I am much more worried about Huxley in that I think he is, he is more right in this one. In Huxley's prophecy, Big Brother doesn't watch us by his choice. Um, that's, that's the problem. We watch him by ours. There's no need for wardens. There's no need for gates. There's no need for the ministries of truth that we read about in Orwell. We appear to be free, but we're not. We give away our own freedom. And I think Huxley's more, more right on that bit. And um, here's what Yaron Lanier, the daddy of virtual reality, said in Social Dilemma, the, the film that we, uh, the documentary kind of movie that we referenced before. We have created a world in which online connections have become primary, especially for younger generations. And this was before the pandemic, where they're even more primary. And yet in that world, anytime two people connect, 
the only way it's financed is through a sneaky third person who is paying to manipulate those two people. So he says this, we have created an entire global generation of people who were raised within a context where the very meaning of communication, the very meaning of culture is manipulation. We have put deceit and sneakiness at the absolute center of everything we do. Wow. Deceit, sneakiness and manipulation at the heart of everything we do. It's almost it's almost like we're reliving a retelling of Genesis 3 there. These companies that are competing for your attention and making money by changing and adapting and adding to what we do, how we think, who we are, this gradual shift of attention and identity, it's slight, but it's very real and very persuasive. And we, we talked about this in the last season where we said, we've heard the phrase, if the product is free, then the product is me. And we're seeing that I am what people are buying and selling my attention, my emotions, my thoughts, my behaviours. Totally. If you, if you aren't being charged, you're being changed. And we don't pay for all these apps. So somebody else is paying and that's because they believe they can change us. So that, that I think, is Huxley's point in his book, A Brave New World. Orwell thought the threat was obvious. It was like coming at us straight on through the front door. The big state is going to spy on us. And we absolutely do need to be alert to that. But Huxley said we would just give our freedoms away. And so I, I kind of think it's somewhat ironic. These people who are complaining about masks and the government imposing these things on us are doing that on Facebook. They go on Facebook to have the rant. And how does Facebook operate? Facebook get you addicted. So that what happens? Car companies or political parties or churches pay them to target you. And why do they pay? Because they want to change your behavior to get you to buy a car or to vote for their party or to go to their church. And we think we're free, but we've had our attention captured, if you like, in that moment. And then they are selling the chance to change our behavior. And we are just as susceptible to that. I mean, the likelihood is you're listening to this episode on your phone, on a device, through iTunes or Spotify, which you probably don't pay for. We were celebrating the fact that we were in the top charts where iTunes is asking for listeners to notice that there is a new podcast to listen to, to become interested in, to give your attention away to. We do that all the time. Um, and we celebrate those opportunities and we think they're really good. But there is there is this misconception that, they're that these companies are just simply selling our data. Uh, they're passing on information like our email addresses or our telephone numbers. I'm getting inundated with sales calls at the moment because somebody has stolen my telephone number. Um, but it's not actually just a simply about data. It's what they do with that data. They don't just sell it to uh, phone companies to try and get me to change my energy tariff. They're building models that are going to predict my actions and whoever has the best model will win. They can predict what kind of emotions will trigger you to buy a, a Hoover or give to charity. They want to keep your attention and your engagement so that you can drive up usage, keep scrolling, keep seeing the next app or the next ad. They want to build how many ways you're going to use these platforms and integrate them into your life so that you keep coming back for more and inviting other people onto it too. And then it's the straightforward advertising that 
keeps other companies engaging with these platforms and making money of us is all powered by algorithms and it's all designed to keep our attention and keeping keep us coming back for more. Yeah, and it's not a fair fight. They're selling our attention and then they know enough data about us that we can go on and for 20 quid or 50 quid say, I'd like to target every 20-year-old in this area to sell my new service, coffee shop, church, whatever it is. And what chance does a child or you and I even have against literally millions of dollars that have been spent by some of the best programmers in the world uh, to, to kind of stack the odds against us? Sean Parker was one of the, the early uh, investors in Facebook said it's exactly what a hacker like him would come up with. You're exploiting a vulnerability in human psychology. You get people to scroll and to like and to engage, and they know how to give us the dopamine hit that we want. And so the creators understood this and consciously went ahead and did it anyway, he's saying. And we've got to remember that a third of 8 to 11-year-olds have a phone, 80% of 12 to 15-year-olds have one, have a smartphone. Um, and these phones are being used to communicate, for play, for validating, and for observing. That's what the Children's Commissioner is looking at them and saying, wow, this is the four things they do. They communicate, they, they we play on them, we validate, and we observe. That's really critical in terms of the odds being stacked against not just kids, but all of us. So there's this serious question about how free we are when we think about these devices and what these apps are doing to us. There are two industries that call their customers users, illegal drugs and software companies. We are often enslaved to the products and companies that we give our freedom to in order for us to get what they tell us we want. Totally. We even talk about tethering these devices, like the very language of that. John Mark Comer, we've said it before, said this, the biggest threat to our faith isn't secularism, but the iPhone in our pocket. And what he was, has argued before is in 2007, the iPhone came along, Facebook and Twitter went mainstream. And we will look back on that date and think about the seismic change. I'm old enough to have had a Nokia brick phone. You may have heard of these. You may have seen them in museums, kids. You know, the only thing you could do was play a game of Snake on that. And it cost a heck of a lot of money to make a phone call. And so you spent at best 15, 20 minutes a day on them. Now we're into a full on assault on our senses in terms of what our phones enable us to do. I still remember when uh, Orange back in the day would give you 10 texts a day. And when that ran out, you'd be in this mid conversation with your mate and you'd have to wait until school the next day before you could carry on the conversation. It was brutal. <laughs> But see, Huxley is saying that we are drowning in the sea of trivia, of apps, of snake, of texts and WhatsApps and phone calls and the latest YouTube clips or whatever it is, entertainment, information overload and utter irrelevance. It's not as if somebody is consciously hiding the truth from us. It's that hardly anyone even cares about the truth. What even is truth? We can now even question whether or not truth even exists. And so you and I speak about these kind of topics and people sometimes say, so what? I don't really care. I just want what Amazon is advertising me. Uh, you know, I agree with what I read on Facebook. I choose what I want. I'm free to get what I want. What's the problem? Is their kind of question. <laughs> well, I think the problem is that only very recently was getting what we want considered to be a marker of freedom. For millennia, desire wasn't the goal. Desire was the problem. Previously, philosophers would have defined desire as the ultimate slavery, that we are simply slaves to desires and actually freedom comes from constraining what we want, not giving into it. 
culture has no clear or agreed idea of what it is to be human. That's what this podcast is all about. Therefore, it doesn't know what it needs to protect. So we are all highly susceptible to being robbed of or losing what it means to be human. So St. Augustine, the early church father, taught that true freedom is not choice or lack of constraint, but being who we are meant to be. Humans were created in the image of God. True freedom then is not found in moving away from that image, but only in living it out. The closer we conform to the true image of God, to Jesus Christ, the freer we become. And then the further we drift from that, the more our freedom shrinks. We find ourselves living in Egypt, enslaved without even realizing it and in desperate need of being rescued, but no idea how or by whom. So you've beautifully set us up there. So we are now in the Exodus story. Uh, for you biblical scholars out there, Exodus 2, 23 to 25 is the part where we hear Israel crying out to God, uh, crying out for rescue, for freedom. Their cries rise up to God and he hears them. He remembers his covenant, the agreement, the relationship that he promised with Abraham, with Isaac and with Jacob. In other words, God takes notice. Yeah, Chris Wright, the Old Testament theologian who took on much of John Stott's work, talks about the physical, the social, the economic and the spiritual aspects of freedom in this text. So we have this tendency sometimes to spiritualize the Exodus text and ignore the wider sense in which it brought freedom. They were in slavery, they were in forced labor, they'd been trafficked, if you like, and, and were, were slaves. There was genocide going on in terms of the uh, killing of the of the children of the Israelites. And it makes us think, as, as you referenced earlier, of the Uyghur people in China, the forced sterilization going on against them as a people group. They had no land, they had no stake in the land in which they were, and they couldn't worship. They had no religious freedom in that moment in Egypt. So God hears their cries. And like I said, he remembers his covenant with Abraham and God looks at the Israelites and he is concerned about them. So God comes down in Exodus 3 and appears in the ever famous burning bush. Yeah. And in that moment, he calls Moses and explains who he will be. I'm Yahweh. I am who I am or I will be who I will be. And, and Yahweh does battle with the gods of Egypt and Yahweh wins because Yahweh is the one true God and so Moses goes before Pharaoh and what does Pharaoh have in his head? He has the snake on his head, which takes us back into Genesis and that battle between Yahweh and, and the person with the snake on their head. And so Yahweh defeats the snake. But the final battle, the, the kind of most brutal of the 10 plagues that comes in is the death of the firstborn son. Which is one of these significant and severe reminders that freedom can be costly. The Israelites uh, take a one-year-old lamb, kill it and put the blood on the doorsteps as a substitute. So they don't lose the firstborn son, but they lose the firstborn lamb, the one-year-old lamb. Um, they are told to eat the lamb on that same night as part of the Passover meal. The blood on the doorsteps will be a sign for the Lord to pass over the house and they will not receive the judgment that everyone else will receive on that night. Totally. And before somebody writes in doorposts and lintel, just not steps. <laughs> so then they have the Passover meal together. I know that's what you meant, but um, so they have that Passover meal and then they're, they keep having that every year. This is the annual reminder and the child uh, children come and say, why does this night differ from other nights? We're reminded in Exodus 13. 
And then they explain, well, this is the night that God showed his power. God brought us out of Egypt from the place of slavery. This is the night where we celebrate redemption. This is the night in which we celebrate freedom. So the Israelites are rescued. They're rescued from bondage and they're liberated and set free. No individual could have done this. No Pharaoh, no person. Moses on his own was incapable of doing this. This is the foundational story of the Israelites. It is the God of redemption and liberation that comes. It is God who hears the cries and rescues his people by coming down and setting them free. We will tell this story to our children and our children's children. It has been passed down through the generations. And so the story unfolds and they cross the Red Sea miraculously. And then before we know it, we get into the grumbling and the and God provides the manna and the water from the rock. And then we're on Sinai and at Mount Sinai, God gives them the 10 commandments as we call it, but actually it's the 10 words, the 10 keys to freedom. He says, look, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. And then in that context, he says, this is how you stay free. This is how you do it. Chris Wright again says, look, the Ten Commandments were given to preserve the very rights and freedoms that were gained by the Exodus, by that movement out of Egypt, by translating them into now a set of responsibilities to stay and live in freedom. So we see this arc, don't we? We see this arc of enslavement, of rescue, and then of protection, of preserving the freedoms, of knowing who we are and how to live. So word one, have no other gods before me. David Foster Wallace says there's no such thing as not worshipping. We all worship. Everybody worships. The only choice we get is what we worship. And that's the compelling reason maybe for choosing some sort of God like Jesus Christ or Yahweh is that pretty much anything else you worship will eat you alive. If you worship money and things, uh, if they are where you tap your real meaning of life, then you will never have enough and you will never feel like you have enough. That's the truth. Worship your body and beauty and sexual allure. You will always feel ugly and time and age will start showing and you will die a million deaths before they even grieve you. God is worthy of our worship. And when we worship God, we experience the trueness and the fullness of life. Yeah. And then the second word is do not make an image. Why? Because human beings are the only legitimate image bearer. In making an image, we worship something other than God, but we also undermine our own role as the only legitimate authorized image bearers. And that idolatry opens up the doorway to injustice. Uh, Neil Postman, who we've referenced before, notes that the second commandment is a strange injunction unless its author assumed the connection between forms of human communication, the quality of our culture, don't make any other image. Third one, don't use God's name in vain. And you kind of think, well, what's that got to do with freedom? Well, again, we've said before, speech acts matter. It's out of the speech that God brought forth this world. Um, we use our speech to worship and we use our speech to address other human beings. So this relates to the first two again, like when we misuse God's name, we undermine uh, kind of what it is for him to be God and we undermine what it is for us to be made in his image. So again, we've got to remember the importance of speech in this moment and to use our speech to worship God and the image bearers that he made. Number four is around Sabbath, one of our favorite disciplines, the thing that we keep coming back to, the freedom of rest. 
what uh, what is it that we do when we stop? We recognize who sits on the throne, who is the author, creator and sustainer of our world. And it's not us, but who is most likely to be working on the Sundays? It's the low paid workers. It's the women. It's single parent families. Over a million parents work weekends. Shops sell stuff over more days, um, but they don't sell more things. They just keep their hours longer and more open so that people have to work. There is a cost. There is an oppression there. Rest um, is a true freedom um, and one that we should hold on to uh, dearly. Yeah, absolutely. So there's the first four. We're on to five. Honor your father and your mother. Honor your parents. Um, there are forces at work in our culture that are attempting to undermine the family and its role in life. You've got things like cultural Marxism and queer theory that are, are not just simply trying to create space for those who are different. They're seeking to undermine marriage and family, um, and they're seeking to constantly challenge that. And yet, if we want further equality, marriage and family are, are key. And so this is a a commandment with a promise uh, that, that, that in terms of those who benefit from and again a key to freedom number six thou shall not kill i mean often we see this primarily as a limitation a restriction but the the command applies to everyone because it ensures a right to life for people to be free there has to be boundaries placed on other people for me to live you must allow me my life this commandment protects my life the lives of my families my neighbors and so on it may seem obvious now but this was the beginning of a human rights framework because we're image bearers we must live to bear god's image yeah, and in a very similar vein, the next word or command is about adultery. It's about sexual fidelity. The sexual revolution promised actually more sex and more happiness, but delivered on neither. We're having less sex and we're less happy with the sex that we're having. So, so much for the freedom there. The promise of freedom was actually a false one in that sexual revolution. Ironically, freedom is found in a covenanted relationship. Stealing, once again, is a limitation, but also protects property. Freedom come, uh, true freedom can lead to this, uh, or total freedom, sorry, leads to a sense of anarchy of just, I can take whatever I want. It doesn't matter who it belongs to. But actually, that context is slavery, where people couldn't own land and weren't free to own their property. In fact, they were the property of another. God instead is saying, I've set you free, but don't fall into the Egyptian ways where property is just the, the right of the most powerful, because that ultimately leads to slavery. Yeah, and the ninth commandment is false witness. Um, don't bear false witness. Takes us into the realm of kind of fake news or more simply lies. Much of what passes for social media these days is, is false witness. And that's a real challenge for us as to how we live our lives in that space. The easy thing to do is to exaggerate, to misrepresent your opponent and then to undermine their position. And we as Christians got to be super careful that we're not bearing false witness kind of inadvertently in some of the statements that we make, particularly on social media. And then finally, coveting. How did I end up getting coveting? I'm pretty sure you're you're the one with the eyes on certain oh, bookshelves on social media. Oh, I know. I was tweeting that recently. Rick Warren's library. I don't know if you saw that one. Uh, I, I just like that was as close to coveting as I came. It looks like the standard study, and you go in and you see this video, and then he lifts this book off the shelf, and there's just kind of secret key, and you open up, and it just goes into this massive hidden library. There's just row upon row of books. Absolutely amazing. Turns out his mum was a librarian, and since he was a teenager, he's been reading a book a day. It's a phenomenal video, but I'm not honestly covering his library-ish. 
Much, yes, sure. Okay, so coveting is not simply, again, another limitation on my actions, but it's also a protection. Freedom is protected by this word on covenanting. No, coveting, sorry. Um, Because it, it asks me to put a check on my desires. It asks me to be thankful with what I have and generous with what I can give away. Coveting uh, robs people of the mutuality of relationship, uh, whereas generosity and and simplicity can stand in its stead. So brilliant. And as we look at these 10 words, the context is absolutely critical. So so often we kind of lift these out and they're seen as these harsh commandments. But the very opening line is God has set his people free from slavery. This is a moment of liberation and redemption. God has rescued his people. He heard their cries. He came down. He rescued them. We too have been rescued. We've been set free from bondage. And that looks really different for each of us. But it has these social, these economic, these physical, these spiritual implications to it. But it's naive to think that freedom is then just a given that, oh, that's great. God set us free. Jesus died on the cross. We're now free. We can do as we like. We're living in a world that is constantly trying to shape us and to form us and to mold us. We're being deformed, if you like, all the time. And our phones and the long day spent on computers, like we're literally being deformed. I was actually went to see the physio last week because I was like, my neck and my back are so sore when I run because I'm sitting in front of a computer far too much. Um, And so I just get really, really sore because I am being literally physically shaped by the devices that I'm using each day. And just to be clear, I'm not a complete Luddite. I am completely coveting your new iMac just to be, (laughs) just to get that in. Um, We like new technology. We're not going to go around destroying the machines and smashing everything up. That's just, that's too simplistic. Most of you are listening to this on smartphones. We're recording this over the internet. We want to see how we can flourish through technology and use technology responsibly and protect and preserve freedom and our image-bearing nature. Whatever uh, I do, I need to make sure that my kids are trying to um, understand what it is that they have in their hands. Whenever they come along and they're trying to get another sugary treat out of me, for example, I have to remind them that everything is good in moderation. I'm not anti-sugar, but I'm anti the amount that they can consume. Everything needs its place. We're not very good at exercising wisdom to manage what moderation and proper pace looks like. Yeah. The key point we're driving here is we as human beings overestimate our ability to manage something, particularly like technology. And it is taking our data. It is distracting us. It is distorting our desires. And we are naive if we think it's just neutral. We've got to be alert to that. And only then can we respond in a good way to that. As we've said, our society does not know what it is to be human. That Even that notion is seriously contested. And given that, it struggles to protect what it is to be human. So our humanity is vulnerable to being robbed or to being lost. And in this episode, we're talking about that in terms of enslavement. Yeah, and we find ourselves then in the story where we the next thing we come across is the Ten Commandments, but they are rooted in relationship and not in religion. And when you cut them off from their context, you lose that story of liberation and freedom and what it means to be image bearers. 
they knew what it was to be robbed of their humanity. That's what life in Egypt was like. And God had restored them. And then he says, here are 10 words to protect this freedom that I'm giving you going forward. So the denial of limits um, and of what it means to be human effectively displaces God as creator and subsequently underwrites this modern notion that the world is no longer to be understood as setting limits to human freedom, but simply it's the material in which we construct our freely chosen identity and future and purpose and worth. Yeah, and so as St. Augustine says, the idea that freedom means no rules, that's just fake news. The idea that we're free now is also fake news, we'd want to say. We need to stay alert for Orwell's big brother, restricting what we can and can't do, the state coming at us and setting those limits, but also the subtler and, and I would argue more pervasive threat of distraction that Huxley talks about. So Sean Parker, again, the Facebook guy, says this, God only knows what it is doing to our children's brains. He's absolutely right there. The thought process that went into building these applications, Facebook being the first of them, was all about how do we consume as much of your time and conscious attention as possible. So how do we then live into the freedom secured by these 10 words? Are you are you suggesting that people put a copy of the Ten Commandments in their front garden to mm -hmm. advertise to the world? You don't have a copy in your front garden? It's, it's these... being delivered next week. Yeah. Excellent. <laughs> um, yeah, there were these kind of debates that used to be in the front of kind of courthouses and public spaces. Um, no, that's not what we're proposing, that, that you get a big copy of them stuck outside your house. Um, I heard this story, I don't know if it's true, that the Archbishop of Canterbury's diary, there were 17 people when Justin Welby arrived who could uh, access his diary and change his appointments um, without it being approved by him. And he's changed all that, so he had to approve everything. And it's that notion of other people controlling your diary who is controlling your life? Who gets access to your world? So if you've got Twitter and Facebook and things like that on your phone, look at your screen time and see how much time they're getting every day and just going, wow, that's how much time I'm giving to them or being distracted by them. Is that what I want? And I think that that for me is a really big one is who am I giving attention to? Who is controlling where I I, I give my focus? I, I'm a big fan of the spiritual practice of the examine. It's an ancient prayer technique. You can look it up and read it if you uh, read about it, if you're not familiar uh, uh, of it. But at its core, it is concerned with noticing, with bringing to God what you notice from your day, from the world around you, your emotions, your thoughts, your actions, where you can acknowledge what is broken and ask God's spirit to bring healing and restoration. It isn't enough to buy into the postmodern story that says deconstruct everything, critique and question everything. It creates an impression of freeing us. But when someone is tearing down the walls of your house to allow you to live in a world without walls, that's not freedom. That's an attack on your home and family. Instead, we need to notice what is what needs to be built back up, redeemed, restored, recreated. And we can look to the creator God to do that with us. Yeah, and the examine has this uh, great focus on kind of reviewing the day and facing up to what you've done wrong. I think we talked before about Stephen Fry and that he talked about at the end of the day, just reflect on, on what he'd done. But that's where he stopped. But the examine moves us into confession and forgiveness. That's the place of true freedom. When we seek forgiveness for ourselves and we seek to forgive others, that is incredibly releasing. Freedom comes from God. Freedom is found in relationship with God. 
the practical reality of that is found in forgiveness, in receiving and giving forgiveness. That's where release and freedom comes. And, and in that, in that process of forgiveness, of recognizing that we can be forgiven and recognizing that in our freedom given to us by, our, by that forgiveness that we've received, we're able to offer that to others. That then causes an amazing space of worship. We talked about we are worshipping creatures. It's who or what we worship that is key. And I, I saw uh, Tim Keller post on Twitter recently that the secret to freedom from enslaving patterns of sin is worship. You need worship. You need great worship. You need weeping worship. You need glorious worship. You need to sense God's greatness and be moved by it, moved by who God is and what he has done for you. So, yeah, get used to leaving the house without the phone the odd time. And yes, you probably need the phone for the other bit. Turn on some worship music. Just let yourself be free in those moments, some practical stuff, because we aren't as free as we think we are, but we also aren't as free as we could be. Like we live in a world of bondage and enslavement of deformation and we too often underestimate how powerful all that is on our lives. And if you don't think that you're in bondage, then you don't need to be set free. And people say, oh, the gospel isn't good news. They think they are free and, and we're selling a life of rules and restrictions as Christians. And we need to point out that people are actually, they are enslaved and we're offering relationship, not religion. We're offering forgiveness, not shame. We are offering true freedom. It was for freedom that Christ has set us free. So that's it. That's the end of uh, another episode of Being Human. Really hope you've enjoyed it. Please, as always, like, share, get in touch at beinghuman at eauk.org. Uh, visit the website beinghumanproject.co.uk. Keep in touch and we will see you next time. God bless. <laughs>